Welcome to the Polygon Alpha Podcast. This is where the Polygon community gathers insights from today's leaders in decentralized finance and crypto. I'm your host, Justin Havens, aka Crypto Texan. Let's get started. On today's episode of Polygon Alpha, we are joined by Mark Richardson, who is the head of research at Bancor. Mark, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going? It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, Justin. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to have you. So where are you right now? What are you doing? There's kind of a conference circuit that I'm competing right now. Um, and so we just had commissionless recently in, um, in Palm Beach in uh, Florida. And uh, I'm actually, uh, I'm, I've just arrived in London just uh, about an hour ago. Um, I have a, a chain link meetup there uh, with the, the community in with the community in London, and then I'm, I'm heading on to Switzerland for Crypto Valley. I've got two keynote presentations there, um, and then I will be uh, coming back to um, coming back to Austin in in Texas to to participate in Consensus. So it's about a, about a month long trip of, of different crypto conferences that just you know happen to be pretty well timed with the launch of our version three, which is which is uh, a, a nice coincidence. Yeah, that is a pretty nice coincidence. Well, it's a coincidence that gets you traveling all over the world, which I guess is nice and probably suffering from a little bit of lack of sleep as well, I can imagine. Let's get into your background, Mark. Um, You know, how did you get into the crypto space and what led you to joining all of these conferences in the same month? My background actually isn't uh, finance or economics. Um, I did a... I did my bachelor in uh, in advanced chemistry. I did a PhD in organic chemistry. Um, I did my first postdoctoral stint at UCI in California, uh, where I also uh, was a lecturer for the organic chemistry department for two years. Um, I then came back to um, to Australia and was uh, working for the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. Um, I had a three-year contract there, um, which happened to coincide with uh, um, the beginning of the, the 2020 pandemic. And um, I didn't really have a, you know, I wasn't allowed to go into work a lot. Uh, the place where I was living um, broke the world record during COVID for the, the longest contiguous um, lockdown, right? So it was about 20, 24 months of, uh, of people not being really being able to show up to work. And, um, and so you know, I was feeling kind of useless. Um, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't feeling very good about, um, you know, what my, uh, you know, what, what my career would look like after COVID being that, that it had this huge interruption. And so I started spending a, a huge amount of time um, trying to find other ways to be productive. Uh, one of the things that really caught my eye was the, the cryptocurrency and blockchain um, industry. And uh, I spent a lot of time hanging out on different discords and different telegram groups and uh, you know, following different Twitter influences, and um, ended up associating myself with a bunch of different DAOs, including Bancor's when it launched its version 2.1 in October of um, 2020. Um, and so, I after the product was out, I had a you know a few things to um, to say about it. I did some sort of analysis uh, with it uh, while I was just a community member, and um, by that Christmas. Uh, I was in uh, like sort of regular meetings with the the Bancor founders and uh, the Bancor Foundation, which is a nonprofit Swiss organization, uh, offered me a full-time uh, research contract uh, beginning January of 2021. 
And so since then, um, I've kind of um, become the, the head of research and the, the product architect. Um, so most of the design principles behind version three uh, were my own. Obviously, it's a collaborative process. Um, you know, the, the, there's, everyone had a little bit to put in, but sort of the overall, um, you know, design um, is, is, is essentially my responsibility. And, um, and yeah, and so far, so good. I, I think I'll, I'll just continue like this for, for, for as long as I possibly can. I'm still enjoying myself. It's very stressful, um, but also very rewarding. And, um, yeah, I, I haven't looked back on my science career since starting. Yeah, that's interesting, that 24-month lockdown period. I'm assuming that was related to Australia. And I think if I look through just in my head, the crypto space in general, there's a lot of very, I don't know, very well-to-do Australians in the space, thinking of like Anthony Sassano, Joe Flanagan, Sydney Powell, yourself, Mark, uh, and then Kane and Kieran, both of those. Uh, do you think the lockdown had something to do with that? Or why do you feel like, or, or why do you think there's so many Australians that are so involved in the crypto space and making a name for themselves? Yeah, it's a really good question. It, it might have had something to do with the lockdown. Um, the you know the twenty four month lockdown was, you know, and and that's a slight exaggeration. It was probably it wasn't quite twenty four months, but we'll say that it was. Uh, that was exclusive to the city of Melbourne, which is where I was living. So it wasn't an Australia wide thing. Um, but I think that, that there's a couple of reasons why Australians might be gravitating towards it. Um, for one, uh, our government is pretty you know crypto uh, crypto positive or crypto agnostic. You know, so they they aren't um, you know threatening sort of uh, you know sweeping regulatory changes that you know would have the potential to ruin you know people's lives. Um, that they're generally pretty pragmatic when it comes to um, you know taxing crypto stuff. Um, you know, they allow people to set up um, you know things like consulting companies and things that can uh, manage crypto assets under under that name. Um, and, you know, pay tax the same way that any other, um, you know, in incorporated entity would within the Australian taxation leg legislation. So, yeah, I think it's, um, it it's at least partly because, um, you know, the, the laws and uh, tax regulations are um, so clear and so easy to navigate, which isn't the case everywhere in the world. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, there's also like a pretty... Um, you know, a, a pretty robust um, reservoir of, of talent for, for things like IT and, um, and programming in, in Australia. Um, I think that as well, Australia is like, is, you know, it's a very big place. Um, and if you are uh, used to sort of the, the normal sort of nine to five jobs, and if you wanted to do something that, you know, applies your mind in a very focused way, you generally have like are forced to live in a major city. Um, so, for example, you can imagine being a university researcher, something like that, um, or maybe like a, you know, a medical researcher. Uh, you basically have to be very close to those facilities. Um, there's just no way about it, right? You can't do medical research remotely from, you know, the, you know, um, you know, from a small town that's like a few hours drive out of a major city. But in blockchain, that's totally acceptable, right? It doesn't really matter where you live. And so you can do something that is like has a very high academic profile. Um, and, you know, that applies a, a very um, hard one critical, um, you know, critical uh, faculties, um, but, you know, doesn't require you to, to move into a major city and pay the, the prohibitively high rent that, they, that they're asking there. 
So that might have something to do with it, but it's a trend that I've noticed as well. I'm not entirely sure that I have a compelling explanation for it, but uh, you know, maybe the things that I've mentioned are, are getting closer, or maybe they're not. We'll, maybe some future historian will, will tell us uh, what they think it is. Yeah, maybe so. And you do have a very strong educational background, and I feel like a lot of people in the crypto and DeFi space come from all walks of life. But I'm curious, you know, in your opinion, do you feel like that strong educational background that you have prepared you for this Web3 space? And I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you feel like it has and maybe has not at the same time? Yeah, so I think that the, the short answer is yes, it has, but maybe not in the way that people think that it has. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I used to tell my, my students is that uh, really a university degree is only good for learning how to learn. You know, your, your bachelor degree is kind of just uh, like a, a proof of concept that you are even capable of sort of self-guided, um, you know, learning utilities and meeting, you know, um, obligations and, um, you know, self-study and that kind of thing. Um, and then after that, your postgraduate, it's not really important what the material is that you're doing a postgraduate with. Um, just that you've completed a postgraduate suggests that, you know, you're very, very good at working in extremely unfamiliar territory. Right, so for, for people that aren't um, aware, when you're doing a postgraduate degree in general, you are inventing something new, right? Stuff that no one's ever, um, you know, no one's ever considered before. You're supposed to be advancing your fields, not just mastering it. And so, um, in a way, you know, that level of familiarity I have with unfamiliar territory. I think is something that my, um, you know, my education uh, did prepare me well for. I also think it's a reason. I also think it's the reason why uh, so many of, um, you know, the the DeFi founders actually come from like, uh, you know, physical chemistry or physics backgrounds. So like the the curve, um, you know, the, the curve founders, uh, I think, uh, come from a strong physics or chemistry background. I know that Tokamak, for example, like a Tokamak actually is the name of a um, magnetic field containment um, system for, you know, plasma and nuclear reactions. You know, these all of these DeFi protocols, they really are sort of being led by, um, I think, people that have been like, you know, fleeing from science academia. And it's not, you know, I don't think that that's mysterious. I think that, um, you know, a, a lot of the academic institutions, especially those surrounding, um, you know, universities, have become, you know, very frustrating for for young scientists. Um, the you know the, the bar to um, to attaining something like an, an assistant professorship, or you know, winning your first like major grant and establishing a lab and that kind of thing, is getting more and more difficult as um, the older generations um, sort of uh, hold on to those positions for longer and longer before they they retire. And so I think that you know, with the blockchain industry sort of getting started, all of these people with postgraduate degrees, doesn't even really matter what they're in. Like I said that chemistry and physics are, are, are notable, but I've seen, you know, applied mathematics, I've seen, you know, lore, I've seen epistemology, you know, uh, people coming from all walks of life, but all tending to have the same sort of, um, the same caliber of, of education, sort of, you know, um, flocking to this space on, on mass. So yeah, it, it has prepared me for it, but not because the material that I studied necessarily is very close to blockchain material, but because I have been trained to, um, you know, not be afraid of doing something that no one's ever done before. Yeah, and you said something really interesting there where you said that you find familiarity 
or yeah, you find familiarity with unfamiliarity. And that probably makes sense as to why you are the head of research at Bancor. Uh, so yeah, my next question for you is, if you could just explain just very quickly for the listeners, uh, what is Bancor? And what do you do as the head of research at Bancor? Bancor is an, an automatic market maker. Um, it was the actually, you know, it was the project that gave rise to the automatic ma market maker paradigm. Um, so the, uh, it used to be a, a community currency project. And uh, one of the things that we realized was going to be a big problem facing, um, you know, this uh, diversification of community currencies, which is something that Bancor is still, um, you know, interested in, in supporting, is that if you need to uh, ever know the value of one of these currencies and something else, then there needs to be a medium of, of exchange to learn that value. And uh, if you are relying on private market makers uh, to um, to make you know to, to provide that exchange for you, um, then it puts like a, an unreasonable amount of of responsibility and and also you know power um, in their hands. And so you know for, for anyone who's who's ever thought like what is the purpose of an AMM. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a really great way to make markets with, with smart contract logic. But if you've ever, um, you know, crossed an international border, just as I have right now, for example, into the United Kingdom, um, I can see that there's a, a Forex desk just behind me um, that, you know, takes international currencies and gives you a, a, a you know, an exchange rate into uh, Great British pounds. And... Um, you know, I, I wonder how many people in the world have ever thought, you know, who determines that exchange rate, right? Like, is this just an intrinsic property of, you know, the great British pound and the American dollar that they should be worth a certain amount of each other? Or do I need to wait for someone to quote me a price for this kind of thing? And, and how do those things play off against each other? And so in a, in a lot of these, um, you know, it, 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 especially things like Forex, because there's only a, a very small number of um, of individuals who are allowed to make markets between these currencies, um, you know, they are easily corrupted, and so you would have seen, for example, over the years, um, you know, rumors about China sort of like deliberately depressing the value of the yuan. Um, you might see uh, Australia um, has been accused of this. Um, previously as well, because it's a net exporter, it's actually beneficial for the Australian economy to have a, a depressed valuation on its national currency because it means that our exports are, are cheaper for, for, other, um, for other nations to consume. Um, the opposite is true for the United States, for example. They, um, they generally prefer a high valuation for their US dollar because they are a net importer and they like to bring resources in. Um, but what's interesting is that the, it's the wants of these economies that seem to be very good at determining the valuation of their currencies. It's net definitely not like it's suspicious that, um, you know, that these things tend to play out exactly how governments want them to. And so there's good reason to, to think that the market makers behind the scenes are sort of um, either being, you know, through the licensing, um, you know, through the inheritance of this responsibility from their government, um, are being given guidelines as to how to make these markets, which means that the markets aren't truly free. Um, and it also means that, you know, if um, if they wanted to collude, you know, to uh, to um, extract value from the markets for themselves, that they can do that. And of course, they do do that. 
And so AMMs really uh, is the, the answer that Bancor has to how to fix these things sort of once and for all. Um, and, you know, more and more people that I speak with from the, from the traditional banking um, sector, I'm sort of agree that um, the, you know, traditional markets have too many humans in it, right? There's a way too, um, uh, too prominent a human presence in the way that markets are run. And having something that's algorithmic and, and predictable and fair that gives everyone the same opportunity and the same answer um, is is probably a much more um, responsible way um, to run something like like a you know like like a currency market. Um, and so that was that was Bancor's whole value proposition for dealing with cryptocurrency, right? Which is a largely unregulated um, asset class. And that private market makers can get away with things that would be considered financial crimes um, in in traditional markets. So it is a big problem, right? We we are we are actively struggling against antagonists that mean to extract value from you know from the Web three community. And I, I do think that AMMs are a really good way to um, to fix that. And so my job at Bancor is to figure out how to make this safe to use. And um, and also, you know, uh, lucrative for um, for liquidity providers to interact with, and also for traders, right? What what do they want? Um, but more than that, also like what other sort of financial um, financial services, you know, what what other kinds of financial products can be built on top of this architecture um, that would allow for a, a fully decentralized economy to emerge that could support not just cryptocurrency markets but any market. And so, um, you know, I spend most of my time um, trying to think of like designing new algorithms. Um, the, the most significant of which is the um, the new withdrawal algorithm on Bancor version three, and I, I'll be releasing a uh, something like a white paper in the coming weeks that will describe that in depth. Um, but essentially, what we wanted to do was to create a um, an environment where liquidity providers don't feel like they're exposed to, you know, the, the financial downside of, of providing liquidity, which is the, um, you know, this thing that we call impermanent loss. And so with Bancor, we say that we've created, an, you know, we have created an insurance model that essentially protects users against that kind of financial downside. Now, those kinds of, those kinds of models require a lot of work. You know, we, we started out with a, a prototype, which was version 2.1. And then after a year of research, investigating how, how this thing performs and how, you know, um, liability accumulates within the network and how that reflects on, um, you know, on, on BNT stakeholders, for example, um, means that we have to sort of iterate and tune the, the model to make it um, more reproducible, more, uh, you know, more long-lived, more sustainable, that kind of thing. So my research really is now that we have the AMM paradigm and it, you know, Looking around the uh, the cryptocurrency economy, you can see that it, it certainly seems to have resonated with a large number of different groups, right? Curve, Uniswap, KyberSwap, SushiSwap, Trader Joe are all derivatives of Bancor's original technology. Um, and so now that we've kind of got this, you know, this technology settling in, and I think forever, now we need to deal with, you know, some of the the more complicated user-facing, you know, risk components. And this is why the, the insurance model is built over the top of it. So now uh, my job is essentially to make it as safe and as profitable for users to use 
um, and you know continue to to develop the kind of feature sets that they that they want to use to make their experiences as, as good as possible. Yeah, you almost talk about it like Bancor has this philosophy uh, to it. And do, uh, do you think that this philosophy that Bancor has differs a whole lot from other players in the space? Like, let's just compare AMMs to AMMs. Like, do you think Bancor's philosophy differs a, a great amount from that of Uniswap or SushiSwap or Trader Joe, for that matter, or Curve even? Yeah, I'd say I'd, I'd say that we're we're probably like in terms of philosophy, we might even be well aligned with with projects like SushiSwap. Um, you know, like we, we do value decentralization. Um, it's been it's been a, a slightly more uh, difficult process for us because we started as a you know a completely regulated, fully centralized exchange, right? Like the DeFi didn't have a name when we first launched our product, um, and so you know the the Swiss regulator said that we should treat. Um, you know, an, an online um, AMM, essentially the, the same way that we would treat, you know, Binance or Coinbase or something like that. And so the, the move to decentralization is something that we always really wanted to do. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a bit of a process. Um, I think that with regards to user safety, um, I, I really don't think that anyone holds a candle to the type of work that we're doing. Um, but uh, I think more more than that, like, you know, coming back to sort of the, the philosophy component, I think that if you read some of the um, some of the messaging that Uniswap puts out, I think that they see their product as a bit more like a casino, right? Like it's a, uh, they talk a lot about users having to, um, you know, basically be responsible for the, you know, the, the profits and losses that they make. They treat it as more like a trading strategy or something like that. And so rather than have it be, um, you know, that, you know, rather than have a product that feels a little bit more like an online, you know, high interest savings account, um, I think that the, the Uniswap developers are really focusing on something that feels more like a, a high frequency, you know, trading uh, floor. And, um, and that's fine. Uh, I, I don't think that either one of us is necessarily correct, but I think that these, these do um, appeal to different demographics. So yeah, I, Bancor is, is really looking to come after the mass market, right? The, the, um, the people that don't have the time or patience or knowledge or expertise to you know, run a, a, uh, their own you know, delta neutral liquidity provision strategy or you know, don't have the um, the availability or time uh, to uh, constantly, you know, unstake and, and restake their, um, uh, the, you know, their liquidity at, at different price points as the market moves it around. We want something that's a, a lot more, um, a lot more hands off, right? We, we, we tend to use the terms set it and forget it, right? Or shake and bake style, you know, market making. And um, I, I do think that that is likely to find the greatest, um, you know, competitive advantage, because the people that have very specialist financial knowledge um, represent a very, you know, thin sliver of all humans that may want to, you know, um, uh, manage their, you know, their money on on Web three. Whereas the the people that just see like a, you know, somewhere to park their funds that are both, um, you know, providing a, you know, providing a support to the rest of the, 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 the industry, uh, right, by keeping their favorite tokens liquid and taking some of that power away from the, the private market makers that might have their own agenda. 
um, but also to earn an interest rate on on that money that they're depositing. I think that that simplicity, right, and that um, that comfort and familiarity um, is is in the long run um, going to prove itself to be a, a lot more valuable than something like um, you know a, a highly um, a highly risky uh, leveraged liquidity product like something like Uniswap V3, for example. Yeah, and I think to me, one of the most interesting things about Bancor is the tokenomics of the BNT token and the utility that it has within the Bancor ecosystem. Because you do allow for single-sided staking, and I believe that the BNT token uh, plays a factor in IL protection related to that. Uh, but then it is also used as insurance and, uh, you know, not only as a conduit for no impermanent loss on trades, but also as insurance. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about the utility of the token and why that's so important to the Bancor protocol. So yeah, you've touched on a, a, a few important points there. Um, so yeah, B BNT has been um, you know, successfully defended as a, as a non-security because of its um, utilization by the protocol. Um, so it is you know, classified by FINMA, which is the, um, the Swiss regulator, um, as is, as a utility token, um, and it was um, you know Bancor was was taken to to court in New York um, by one of the uh, I think one of the ICO investors who you know it, it was a a career litigator so I think that they just saw the you know the opportunity to sort of take advantage um, but the New York court threw it out um, which is terrific right because it actually does help to establish that there was no um, you know there was no legal um, reason to suspect that BNT should be treated as a security. And it was shortly after that that we were able to um, open our front end to American citizens again. Um, you know, a lot of um, private banks started carrying BNT, for example. Um, so regular, like regu regulatory speaking, um, BNT is, is um, sort of a very well battle-tested token, which is, is a nice thing to have. Now, the, that utilization... Um, comes from the fact that it is the universal numeraire across the protocol. Um, when a, uh, a you know, you're right to point out that single-sided staking is something that only Bancor has, um, and this works by um, essentially when you provide whatever token you want. Let's pretend it's ETH, for example. Um, the uh, the protocol has a preset the BNT funding limit um, up to which it's allowed to mint BNT in order to support market making activities with the tokens that users are providing. Um, so as long as we're underneath that threshold, um, the um, whatever the ETH is is worth, it kind of uses the existing um, the existing pool as a price oracle to determine how many uh, BNTs should be provided to to maintain balance on the pool as you add and remove liquidity that way. Um, now, what we do in Bancor version 3 is we issue uh, you a pool token. And this is a, a very unique pool token because it's completely single-sided and it's uh, blind to its um, impermanent loss. So when you go to withdraw from Bancor, um, it will first, uh, like the way that the, the withdrawal algorithm works and, and behaves, is that it will try to uh, always give you the full value of your principal plus all of the fees that you've accrued in the token that you provided. So if you provided exclusively ETH, then it's going to try and give you exclusively ETH back when you withdraw from it. Um, but if the you know ETH price has performed quite well, 
um, or if your withdrawal is quite large in some cases, um, then uh, you know if the if that position has accrued some impermanent loss, then you're basically entitled to an insurance payout. So the, you get back the um, you know the ETH that is left on your fungible position, and then you basically get a cash payout from the protocol in the form of BNT. Um, and so this is you know one of the ways that I explain this is that um, you know imagine if you uh, like crash your car for example that's insured um, when you approach the insurance company generally they just give you uh, cash right to buy a new car with they don't buy a new car for you so the uh, I think the that insurance behavior is, is very important to, to note that it's possible that if you, even though you provided single-sided liquidity, that when you withdraw, um, because of IL, um, it's possible that you will receive a small amount of BNT that's kind of mixed in with the, with the ETH that you, um, that you provided as well. Um, now that in a sense is a type of underwriting token. Um, you can think of IL as a type of shortfall event, similar to like lending on Aave. So um, the this insurance, um, you know, backstop, um, you know, utility that BNT has um, is not the only token with this utility. Things like Compound and Aave and you know NXM also have this type of of, of backstop utility. So it's not unique to Bancor, um, but what is unique is the fact that BNT is also the um, the uh, the default pairing for all assets across the protocol. So while being used as, a, as an underwriting token, um, it's also a numerator token or a balance sheet token or, or however you want to call it. And so this is very similar to um, the way that ETH is used in Uniswap version 2. Um, and actually, you know, it was, uh, it's no mistake, right, that the Uniswap launched with ETH. So after the, the Bancor uh, ICO, um, we actually received a lot of praise um, from, um, you know, from members of the, the Ethereum Foundation. But one of the things that they really were strongly encouraging us to do was to not have the, the BNT token sale and instead use ETH as the, the numerator asset. And uh, it's easy, you know, it, you can go back and find these conversations, right? They're, they're, not, they're, they're not hidden. Um, but really, uh, a lot of the Ethereum community was upset um, that such an interesting use case for, for a cryptocurrency would be, you know, denied to the layer one token on which this, these products are being built. And so, you know, Uniswap was um, was created from a, a grant by the, the Ethereum Foundation to create a Bancor-like right exchange um, that uses ETH instead of BNT as the numerator asset. So BNT has both the, the you know that shares that numerator property um, with ETH as it does on Uniswap v2, but also has things like underwriting properties like NXM and Aave and Compound do. So it's kind of a hybrid of different utilities. And then on top of all of that, BNT is also something like a proof-of-stake governance token. So when users provide BNT to the network, um, you know they, they uh, take their share of 50% of the fees, which is still one of the highest value captures in all of DeFi. And um, you know they are also issued VBNT voting tokens. And what's uh, what makes our our DAO so so special is that because all of the voters um, have necessarily provided liquidity to the protocol before they are allowed to vote, they are actually like actually incentivized to make sure that the protocol health is managed well. Because if they make a mistake, right? If they do things like vote for 
you know, um, you know, frivolous liquidity mining rewards, or, you know, they whitelist tokens that are intrinsically dangerous or associated with, you know, criminal activity or have other security problems, then the damage that's done to the protocol will actually cause them financial damage. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's very, very close to like actual proof of state consensus mechanisms, things like beacon chain, um, where, you know, you provide collateral against a system in order to govern it um, and, you know, make decisions for it. And if those decisions are bad, you get slashed. It's not quite that dramatic on Bancor, um, but it's just that, you know, the, the weight of your financial decisions with regards to the protocol overall are still borne out on the, you know, um, the things like the price appreciation of the BNT token and the overall utility of the, of the network. So, yeah, they, I would say that BNT's tokenomics structure, um, it is, you know, it, it, it covers a lot of ground. Right, all, all of the major use cases for for cryptocurrency um, are applied to the BNT token, and um, yeah, it's a uh, it's something that I think is poorly understood. I'm really looking forward to having more of these kinds of discussions after the the V3 deployment is out. But yeah, uh, BNT's tokenomics, in my opinion, are, are second to none anywhere in the industry. Yeah, it really is fascinating. And when I was doing my research on the tokenomics. Um, I just kept digging and digging, and I, I felt like I could never find the end of the utility for this token. One of the things I need to work on is making it simpler, right? Like it, it's it's like well, it's all well and good to have all of these kinds of things, but um, I think most people, uh, when they're approaching a new token for the first time, they kind of want to understand it inside of like five minutes, right? If you have to do all of this digging to get to the bottom of something, it's it's probably not very well articulated. Um, and so this is this is one of the things that I'm going to be working on again after the the um, deployments are out. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to having more discussions about it. Well, yeah, and it's like first of all, someone who's not familiar with DeFi at all, imagine first explaining them how DeFi works, and then explaining the tokenomics of BNT uh, shortly after. Um, that seems like a nearly impossible feat. It definitely doesn't take five minutes, much longer than that. Uh, and one of the questions I had was, how does Bancor protect against governance attacks for long long tail assets to get whitelisted, and and you touched on that already. Uh, so thanks for answering that. But another question that I had was related to, so when you do receive, I guess, additional BNT tokens for you know, I guess, to make up for the impermanent loss that you had received on the single sided staking, uh, where are those BNT tokens coming from? Um, is that coming from people who have staked them, or are these are these being minted? So the the governance attack one. So yeah, as I said before, we've got this proof of stake mechanism, but that's not all we have. Um, you know, the the Bancor DAO has accepted um, a really like prohibitively high standard um, when it comes to um, things like participation and majority rules. So for example, most DAOs in the space are like a simple 51% majority or, you know, a, a 50 plus epsilon, you know, percent majority. Um, and, you know, no real quorum requirements. Um, and this makes it very, very easy for malicious actors to kind of take control of the governance when really like no one's paying attention. Um, for the Banco DAO, um, we have a 40% um, quorum requirement. So we need 40% of all voters to be present on each proposal um, in order for them to be validated. 
And um, our supermajority rules start at like 66%. So start at a two-thirds majority in order to pass and go as high as an 80% majority in order to pass. And so th these, um, you know, these factors kind of combine to make it very, very difficult for a single, you know, ultra-motivated actor um, to sort of gain sufficient uh, voting control that they are able to pass uh, policy on their own. They can do things like defeat policy, but that's generally not how governance hacks are performed, right? It's usually about bringing something new in that is, um, you know, uh, maliciously advantage, uh, advantageous for just the one person that, that's controlling the government. So that we have these safety mechanisms, mechanisms built in. They're not perfect, obviously, but I'd say that they're pretty good. Um, and, you know, we've, we've um, you know, the Bangkok DAO is one of the most active in the space, right? We've, we've had hundreds of proposals already. And so it's being managed pretty well. Um, and, you know, despite the, um, you know, the apparent profit motive that someone would have to try and attack the governance system, um, if anyone has attempted it before, um, they haven't been successful. So it, the system is working out quite well. Now, with regards to the insurance payouts, um, the, 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 there are two ways that you can think about it. So that there is a system inside the um, inside the Bancor network that um, is essentially confiscating fees from both BNT and TK and liquidity providers. Um, and at the moment, it's confiscating those fees at a rate of 15%. And this is akin to your insurance premium. Right, so you don't get the IL protection for free, right? That just wouldn't make sense. Um, but the uh, instead, you you pay for it by basically um, taking you know fifteen percent of the fees that you earn on trades, and essentially kind of sending that into sort of a mutual fund, right? I, I, I'm going to clarify that what I mean by this in, in a minute because what I said is actually just abjectly false, um, but it's a helpful way to think about it for now. So imagine that uh, we take a system like Sushi Swaps, right? Where all of these fees are being, you know, sent to ex-Sushi stakers. And instead of doing that, we instead put it in another place that when, um, when liquidity providers are withdrawing from the protocol, that if they've made a loss, we use that collection of fees to pay them out, right? And so you have this kind of like mutual um, that, um, you know, has sufficient funds in it um, or, you know, is expected to have sufficient funds in it such that when people are withdrawing, if they have impermanent loss, we can just pay them out. Mark, is there ever any risk that there won't be enough in fees to reimburse somebody or a user 100% for that IL protection? Like what, what safeguards are in place? There is absolutely um, that risk. So um, before, we, uh, before we delve into that, First, let me explain how we we don't actually have that shared fund um, because it's actually a um, you know there there are legal problems um, to having a shared fund like that because it starts to look more like a um, you know like a group investment project or something like that um, and so we would have to you know there there are licenses and things that that would make that sort of thing um, you know uh, difficult to justify to a regulator as we go increasingly mainstream. Instead, what happens is the protocol uses those funds to immediately buy and burn BNT. And that, uh, that burning of BNT is supposed to offset the creation of new BNT when IL insurance payouts are provided. Um, and so the idea is to match those two rates together. 
if the overall um, you know uh, creation like the, if the rate of creation of new BNT um, in the form of IL protection is roughly equivalent to the amount of BNT that's being burned um, during the speed confiscation events, then you've kind of got this you know imaginary insurance fund where the, the value kind of is used to uh, first remove BNT from secondary markets. And then um, when an insurance payout is made, that BNT is then reintroduced into those secondary markets. And so if the, uh, if the IL payouts are exceeding the burn rate, then you're in, in essentially in, a, in a, an inflationary economy. And when the burn rate is exceeding IL payouts, you're in a deflationary economy. And so it's never the case that these two things are exactly equivalent, right? Uh, there have been times where, you know, the IL payouts have been rather high. So things like when, um, like I remember early on in the protocol's history, when um, we had a, a pretty good uh, uh, liquidity pool for the MATIC token, and then the MATIC token went, you know, like 125x. You know, it's a, uh, that was a, a big insurance liability, now we managed it, right? It, 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 you know, the protocol and the token were really non worse for wear. Um, but that was a time where you know you, you you couldn't deny it. Like absolutely, this was an inflationary, um, uh, you know, an inflationary period where fee earnings just were not, were not catching up to um, you know IL liability. But um, for a lot of uh, last year, since the um, since the downturn, right, since the April peak. Um, you know, the, the BNT supply has actually been deflationary. The, the IL costs across the protocol have actually been less than um, the, you know, the, the fee earning that's happened. And so it's okay for the, the protocol to sort of play hopscotch with this line, right? It's, um, you know, no one says that, um, you know, a, a, a small amount of inflation over time is, is a dangerous thing or a small amount of um, you know, uh, deflation over over long periods of time is a dangerous thing, but certainly like sudden changes in the in the supply can be dangerous, right? Both inflationary and deflationary. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the reasons why um, you know the um, the liquidity mining incentives, for example, in Bancor version three are, are becoming a lot more sober. Um, you know, as we enter sort of into the the, the next phase of the the protocol's life cycle. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you know, with regard to your question, yes, there are these risks, um, and it is the job of the bank or DAO to manage them. Um, and you know, I'm building out. You know, my research team is currently building out a uh, an analysis suite that's really trying to do uh, a lot of uh, the um, you know a lot of the the hard yards with regards to building out these kinds of like actuary tables and, and things like that so that the bank or DAO can make these decisions in a much more informed way. Um, but because it is kind of a developing theory and, um, you know, th there isn't a huge amount of, of economic precedent for how to, um, how to govern one of these things, you know, it's something that we have to kind of uh, take the challenges as we find them. Um, but in general, what I keep an eye on is the, the minting rate, the BNT minting rate due to IL and the BNT burning rate due to fee accrual. And as long as those numbers are pretty close together, it doesn't really matter which one's higher or which one's lower. But as long as it is mostly the same, um, then the whole the protocol is very, very safe. And uh, you can have a look at our June analytics page and you can actually see um, you know, the, the BNT burn and mint um, charts. And they basically are parallel lines, which is what they should look like if the, the protocol is covering its, its costs.
So yeah, it's mostly it covers its costs. Sometimes it does more than that. Sometimes it does less. But in general, the trend is is neutral. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And just to touch on something that's kind of happened recently in the news, I think when people, I guess, recently are associating the algorithmic minting of tokens, um, I think the the thought of a death spiral uh, comes to mind quite a bit more recently. And is that is is that what prevents BNT? Is the the burning of the of the BNT tokens? There is going to be a changing narrative in DeFi, I think. Because, um, you know, one of the things that happened over the last 12 months was, you know, people like myself have been trying to warn users that, um, you know, the the types of, um, like, monetary policy that they are relying on and voting on and getting excited about with regards to, you know, massive inflation in order to drive, like, a you know, uh, what they consider to be a sexy APR, for example, for staking stuff is just kind of meaningless. You know, like I, I've seen protocols and, you know, I, I don't want to name them, um, but let's say, you know, that I, I know of a protocol that was um, reporting something like an 8,000% APR, and it was meant to hold that forever. But like, what is it for 8,000 APR worth if the token goes from, you know, over $1,000 to under $13? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty clear that um, you know the the way that uh, the the community inside DeFi you know crunches their numbers is slightly broken. Like for example, one of the things that I'm I'm uh, going to try and get people to understand is this analogy that I have for like a for pizza, right? So imagine for example, if you you pull a pizza out of the oven, you only have one pizza, you haven't cut it yet, or you've got one slice of pizza. And so, you know, one of the things you might do is cut the pizza in half. And so now you've got two slices of pizza and that, now you've got a hundred percent APR, you know, you can cut the pizza in half again and now you've got a 400% APR and you cut it again. Now you've got 800, you know, the, the point is, is that the amount of pizza isn't changing, just the number of slices. And this is kind of how inflation works. And, you know, I think that, um, partly because of the naivety, um, but also for other reasons, right? Like there is value to things like, um, you know, more uh, more fairly distributing a token around and getting more token holders, um, you know, participating in something. Like inflation has a lot of really great aspects to it. Um, but, you know, eventually if you keep pushing that button just to try and keep an arbitrarily high APR, it just doesn't make any economic sense. And I think that, you know, this is one of the things that, that we are... Um, you know, that we're starting to go through. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is that the the IL costs on Bancor with regards to like BNT printing, really not that, you know, it's really not that high. Um, the, the, much more, um, the much more concerning aspects are, you know, the, the version 2.1 liquidity mining reward schedule. And so, you know, this is something that Bancor was famous for. The community obviously loved it. Everyone likes seeing that, you know, that 40% number or something on the front page. Um, but... It is the the most um, you know it, it is the most um, worrying component of Bancor's economics, not the IL protection. And so, with Bancor version three, the um, you know I, I have gone to some lengths right to really map out what I think a, a reasonable monetary policy is going to look like. Um, you know how the um, how the emissions can be managed and eventually tapered down to nothing. 
Um, and so in a way, what I want BNT to start emulating is the, um, the diminishing emissions rate of, of Bitcoin. And, you know, paradoxically, you know, Bitcoin, if you hold it in a DeFi sense, has an ROI of 0%, <laughs> you know? And of course, like, you know, it, meaning that you don't actually get any more Bitcoins for having them. Um, but, you know, this has been um, to its credit, right? This is, it is one of its greatest strengths is that instead of, um, you know, ballooning the supply of the token, you know, it, it appreciates in value. Um, and this is something that is easily replicated in my, in my view. Um, and so for the, the BNT uh, community and for version three, um, and I think maybe for all of DeFi, we're going to, we're, we are going to see this, the, the emergence of this new narrative for like, you know, um, you know, responsible economic policy. And for, for Bancor, um, the, the most, the, the, the number one thing that we can do to be more responsible in the short term is manage these, you know, these liquidity incentives and just let the protocol, you know, give the protocol a chance to rise to the occasion. Um, after that, you know, a second priority or, you know, not, not, a, not a second, maybe a secondary priority um, is the, um, you know, the uh, IL minting versus, um, you know, fee burning um, component. But because those numbers are small compared to the liquidity mining, um, it's pretty clear which one needs to be dealt with first. Yeah, so in, in your mind, what are some of the, the key features of version three that you're most excited about? And this can be as, as technical as you want to or as, or as general as you want to. So I think that, the, um, that, that there are a lot of features of, of Bancor version 3 that I'm excited for. Um, one of the ones that I said uh, before is that, you know, there's a, a new withdrawal algorithm that can actually compensate users IL without having to mint BNT, which is interesting. So this is something that version 2.1 couldn't do. Um, but essentially, imagine a situation where um, we might have two different tokens, maybe ETH and, I don't know, USDT. And the, uh, the USDT balance of the protocol is in surplus, meaning that the big due to price movements, um, the, um, and the number of stablecoins inside the protocol outnumbers the amount of stablecoins users are eligible to withdraw. Um, and then, you know, ETH might be the opposite, right? It's in deficit, meaning that it's got IL and the due to, you know, price appreciation of the ETH token. Um, there are fewer ETH tokens inside the protocol than users are eligible to withdraw. Um, so on version 2.1, um, basically you can't do anything with the excess stablecoins and the, you know, the, um, the IL on, on the ETH is essentially asymmetric. Um, on version 3, one of the things that we can actually do is force a, um, a, uh, an arbitrage trade to occur between UST, USDT and ETH such that the, um, the protocol is losing some of its surplus tokens in order to regain some of the tokens that it's missing. And this is done very, very slowly, right? It's, a, it's not a dramatic change, um, but it's an important one because as you slowly let this algorithm play out over very long periods of time, the impact that it has on um, basically um, letting the protocol keep you know, chasing its obligations without minting BNT or only minting BNT as a last resort means that we, we have a, a much more, um, you know, a much more resilient um, insurance model um, than what we've had previously. And so I think that's something definitely to be excited about. But then the, the things that I'm, I'm the most excited about are actually the industry-facing features of Bancor version 3. 
So things like um, you know the auto compounding rewards that are um, you know offered uh, as a service to third parties um, to bootstrap and and motivate and and influence their own um, you know their own projects and their own teams and their own you know community members. Uh, this is something that Bank Horizon had before and is something that people are really interested to use. But the way that we developed it was observing the types of death spirals that you've been talking about. Um, and, you know, if, if anyone um, who is listening to this, this podcast is interested, I actually delivered a, a keynote presentation at Permissionless this year that was um, dealing with specifically this concept, right? The, the problem of, of like liquidity mining um, incentives to bootstrap community liquidity and the, the damage that it ultimately does to the project and to the token price. Um, and so what Bancor has, has developed is a really compelling alternative that doesn't require um, a, you know, a, a project to sort of sacrifice the value of its token in order to create liquidity with it. Um, and this has been extremely well received, right? Everyone that we've shown the system to um, has just been, um, you know, uh, so relieved that there is a, a new alternative that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't uh, require driving their token price into the ground. And so I think that that's exciting. Because over the course of, you know, since DeFi summer, right, up until this day, really um, a lot of the altcoin markets um, have been set up in a way that, um, you know, gener first generates value and then drives that value to the layer one token. It's, it's probably one of the reasons why layer one tokens have performed so well. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing what DeFi tokens can actually do when they're given some room to breathe, right? And that we sort of, um, you know, cut, cut the the chains off their ankles a little bit and and let them you know perform in a much like in, in a much more natural um you know price discovery mode and that's exciting to me right that other teams and other projects and other communities uh will will no longer have to sort of fear that you know that the the liquidity challenges that they're facing necessarily require their token price to be harmed Bancor version 3 has a way around that um, and I think that that's going to be better for literally everyone. So, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. This has been great. You might not know this, but you're actually the first guest on the Polygon Alpha podcast. So thank you for being here. And my, I guess my next question is, uh, where can people go to find out more about you and Bancor and version three? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be happy to share with you my, uh, my, my Twitter handle and my Telegram handle. And uh, if you want to put this in the description to the, to the podcast or something like that, then um, I, I would you know, absolutely encourage people to, to message me directly. Um, sometimes it takes me a little while because my, my inbox can be overwhelmed very quickly. Um, but in general, I, I, I make an effort to answer um, every single message that someone sends me. All right. Yeah. Thanks again, Mark, for coming on the podcast and safe travels out there. I'll see you next time. My pleasure, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Bye.